Turning back to the book of Matthew chapter 11, we continue our studies of the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ as listed in Jesus' reply to certain disciples of John the Baptist who came to him and asked the question, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? We'll read that paragraph together again from Matthew chapter 11. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. We note that, as John said in his closing remarks in the book of John, as we consider the miracles of Christ together, that if everything that Jesus did and said were to be pinned down and to be recorded, he supposes, and we read that for you in John 21 and 25, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. John says that there were many other things that Jesus did and that Jesus said. He would say this also in the book of John chapter 20 and verse 30. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Jesus spent his three-and-a-half-year ministry in this world tirelessly healing the sick, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, preaching His Word, cleansing the lepers. And in today's message, we want to consider the second miracle or type of miracle that Jesus listed in Matthew eleven five, the lame walk, the lame walk. Jesus made the lame to walk again. Now, as we talk about these miracles, as we noted in the last two messages, it's important just to briefly refer back to the fact that when Isaiah wrote his many prophecies, from time to time in his prophecies, he would speak of the coming Messiah. Now, Isaiah would speak of many things. Some things in Isaiah's writings he would refer to that were contemporary to the nation of Israel. There were times that he would speak about things that were happening right then and there. Sometimes Isaiah would write or speak about things that would happen in the next generation. He would say to the king that there's coming a day when the king's sons would be carried away into Babylonian captivity. Isaiah wrote of the restoration from Israel from Babylonian captivity as he prophesied of Cyrus, king of Persia, who would be the king that would issue the decree to rebuild the holy city and to allow the Jews to return to their nation of Israel. Isaiah wrote many things concerning the coming of the Messiah. Recently we studied Isaiah 53 and the latter portion of Isaiah 52, which is one of the most graphic depictions of the Christ and the work of Christ in the Old Testament. And 
Isaiah would even refer to things that have yet to come to pass, the destruction of this world and our presence with God in eternity, as he wrote of the new heaven and the new earth. So Isaiah writes, and he refers to things that are very close, things that are far away, and things that are very distant. And the reason that God does this in his word is when you look back at the prophecies that have been fulfilled, you can look to those that haven't been fulfilled and find comfort and strength and an increase in faith, knowing that because everything else God said has come to pass, has come to pass, or shall come to pass, has come to pass, those things that he points to in the future shall also come to pass, and your faith will be strengthened. You'll find the strength to look for those things that have not been yet fulfilled. One of the things that Isaiah, as we noted in the last two messages, spoke of concerning the Messiah is that he would give sight to the blind He would cause the lame to rise and to walk again. He would open the ears of the deaf, and he would preach his word. And so as John sends these disciples of his to Jesus to ask, it's no coincidence, it's no random occurrence that Jesus would list these particular things as proofs of his office as the Messiah, and as the Messiah, his authenticity as the Son of God, the Word that was made flesh. He is literally taking hold of the prophecies of the Christ and applying those prophecies to himself. He speaks and he says, The blind receive their sight. We talked about this last week. The next work of Christ that he lists is in the second phrase of verse 5, The lame walk. The lame walk. And so today our focus is on the healing of the lame. Now just to maybe mention the way that we use that word today, you young folks, you know that in our modern American vulgar slang, the word lame means someone who is not cool. So if any of you come up to me after church today and say, okay, boomer, that's the thing kids are saying right now. Don't call me, I'm not a boomer. Okay, Boomer, I'm going to pray that God heals your lameness. We're going to excommunicate you. (laughs) Because that's not what the word means. It doesn't mean uncool. It doesn't mean that we need to pray for his lameness because he's not a very cool person. That's what it means to us today. But the word lame, as it occurs in the KJV, has reference to someone who is disabled so that they cannot walk. And this had a variety of causes, had a variety of causes. But it has reference to someone who is disabled. The Oxford English Dictionary of Historical Principles defines this English word lame as one who is crippled. That's not a politically correct term in our present day and age. We don't use that term, but it is in the dictionary and it is in the King James Bible. And so for the sake of today's message, we will use that word. It also is defined as one who is weak, one who is infirmed, one who is paralyzed, and one who is unable to move. So when we talk about Jesus healing the lame, we're talking about those who are weak, infirm, paralyzed, and unable to move. And this will be depicted as we study some examples of this together. You'll see very graphic depictions of Jesus healing those who are referred to as being lame. The OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, also provides this definition. Crippled through injury, defect in a limb, especially a foot or leg, limping, 
and unable to walk. So this could be by reason of or because of injury to yourself. It could also be due to illness. It could be due to a birth defect. And we see this in the world today. There are many different reasons that a person might be halt or handicapped, disabled, whatever word that you want to use to describe it. And if you keep up with the American lexicon, it changes every five to ten years what the PC word is to use to describe it. And when a word is used long enough, that word being associated with the disability, whatever it is, suddenly becomes not PC because you're pointing out the fact that someone has a disability. And we all have or will eventually have some form of Disability. We all get older. The body waxes old, as does the garment. None of us have the strength that we had when we were 18 years old. Amen? Unless you're 18 years old. You don't have that strength anymore. Your back hurts. Your shoulder hurts. Your neck hurts. Your eyes don't see the way they used to see. Your brain doesn't work the way that your brain used to work. You might struggle for words. You might not run as fast. You might not walk as long. You may not bench press as much. Face it, we're just all getting older. My shoulder was hurting so bad last night, it woke me up about half dozen times, and finally, about daylight, I woke up and took a bunch of ibuprofen, and so my shoulder stopped hurting. We all have to deal with that in our lives. There will be a day that all of us end up in a bed, unable to get up and walk. Unless we die an untimely death, God forbid, we all age. It's just a part of life. It's a part of life. But this has reference to someone who is experiencing this incapacitation at a younger age in their life, someone who either through disease or birth defect or accident, as we would call it, is unable to move, unable to function the way that they used to could function. Now, this Greek word also translates, the word that lame is translated from, into the English word cripple, one occurrence in the KJV, and also the word halt. We don't use that halt, that word halt, very often today. It's an archaic word to us. We don't use it as it applies to someone. In other words, we wouldn't pick that adjective and say, this person is halt, this is a halt person. But we do use the word as a verb. How many of you have said halt, and what does that mean? It means you shall not pass. It means stop. So when the Bible uses that to describe someone who is halt, it's talking about someone who is unable to move, unable to proceed. So think about the verb tense that we still use it in our present day and then apply it as a descriptive term to someone. They are halt, meaning they can no longer move. They can no longer function. They can no longer walk. And so the words lame, cripple, and halt all translate from the same Greek word, the word that we find here in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 5, describing the type of ministerial work, the miracles that Jesus performed in his life. Sometimes this word can even have reference to an amputee. Now, the reason that we're depicting it in such a way, and we'll continue to describe the various applications of this word, is just to reinforce the point that there's no faking the miracle of healing an amputee. There's no faking the healing of an amputee. In the book of Matthew chapter 18, as Jesus was teaching on offenses and church discipline, he says in verse 7, Woe unto the world because of offenses. Woe unto the world because of offenses. The world is a place of offenses. 
Now, as Americans today, we, we have made an art out of this. Everyone's offended. How dare you? I'm offended. And we could be offended about anything. We could be offended because someone has a difference in opinion. We could be offended because someone holds to a different view. We can be offended because someone simply looked in a way that we didn't like them to look. And we are all offended and we go to a safe place and we cry about it. I think some of the most telling little images, memes on social media shows the 18-year-olds storming the beaches of Normandy and compares them to the 18-year-olds of today's time who are offended and cry about things. You think about the men, the 18-year-old men that had to storm the beaches of Normandy. This past week we observed Veterans Day and I saw a picture of uh, Brother Rick who served in the U.S. Marines and I think you might have had to lie to get in and tell them you were 18 when you're really 17 years old. Uh, but... So uh, imagine the the men that we had in the nation at that time. Well, today everybody's offended. Today everybody's offended. Well, Jesus says, woe unto the world because of offenses. It must needs be that offenses come. That doesn't mean that God wants everyone to be offended. It means that they're inevitable. They're inevitable because we are all sinners. We are sinners ourselves, and so we're easily offended. And we are sinners ourselves, and so we offend other people. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Now this is an example of the literary device we refer to as hyperbole, hyperbole or an exaggeration. Do you have to cut your hand and your foot off to escape hell? No, that's hyperbole. Will there be anyone who enters into heaven walking on one foot? No, because in the resurrection we are raised with glorified bodies. But this is what we refer to as hyperbole. And it serves two specific purposes in Jesus' teaching to his disciples. Number one, we should be careful to mortify the flesh so that we're not destructive to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it's better that a millstone be hanged around our neck and to be cast into the depths of the sea than to be cruel to and offend one of God's little ones, to overthrow the faith of one of God's little ones, as it were. At the same time, immediately after this, Jesus begins teaching on church discipline. The church is a body. The church as a body is made up of members, as your body is made up of members, hands and feet, organs, eyes, ears, nose. When a body has an infected limb that is so infected that it threatens the life of the rest of the body, what do they do with that limb? They amputate it. Likewise with church discipline, if there is a chronic offender in the church, someone who is unrepentant and offensive, what do we find in verse 15 through 20? That if there's an offender, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he's offended you, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he will not hear thee, take with thee two or three more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. 
If he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. If he neglect to hear the church, let him be what? As a heathen man and a publican. What do you do? You amputate the member, as it were. And so Jesus' teaching here has a twofold lesson. One, on personal mortification, we put to death the sin in our members that we be not castaways in this world. And again, this is an example of hyperbole or exaggeration. Two, in the church, it's better to painfully amputate a portion of the church if it is gangrenous or if it is a canker, as we read in, or as we read in 2 Timothy chapter 2, their words do eat as doth a canker, then for the whole body to be destroyed. Churches are too precious to allow them to be destroyed. But what does Jesus say here? What word does he use? It's better to enter halt or maimed. Halt. And in particular, this word halt has reference to the losing of one's foot or leg. Halt. After all, you can walk if you're missing a hand. But it's much more difficult to walk if you're missing a leg or a foot. Now this could have reference to one with a, this word lame, lameness, just as a general umbrella, could have reference to one who has a withered leg. You can think about someone having an injury and in the day before modern medicine, if you had a break in the bone and the bone was not set properly for the rest of that person's life, that leg would not be the way that it originally was. And they would walk with a terrible limp. Maybe they couldn't walk on it at all. If a bone is totally separated and it's not set, it's a very gruesome looking and debilitating injury if you've ever seen that maybe in pictures or videos from the third world of someone who had a break and it was not set, it's very, very devastating to that individual. You could also think of someone who was afflicted as a child with polio. How many of you knew someone with polio before the vaccine to that virus was available and we were all vaccinated as children so that we could not get the virus? When I was growing up, there was a deacon... Brother E.J. Samples at the church in Beulah that my brother now pastors. And when I was a little boy, he was a man that walked with a cane and one of his arms and one of his legs was affected by the polio virus. As I grew older, he aged and was in a motorized scooter that he would drive up into church and he was afflicted with that his entire life. He could not walk and if he did walk, when he was younger, he could not walk well because he was afflicted with that. And so that would, this concept of, of lameness, haltness, this also applies to someone who would be afflicted with polio. We'll also consider today Jesus' healing of people that had what the Bible refers to as the palsy. The palsy. Now, we still use that as a medical term today. You have cerebral cerebral palsy. And that is a, an affliction that people can be afflicted with today. You also have what's known as Bell's palsy, and it's where part of your face, half of your face begins to lose its function and experience a mild form of paralysis. That can be a, a career stopper for a professional brass player because your amateur depends upon your ability to maintain firmness in the corners of your mouth. There's a professional trom trombone player in town that actually struggled with that maybe a decade ago and had to come back from that. And we refer to that as a form of a palsy. 
But in the Bible, the word palsy has reference to basically any form of paralysis, as we'll see momentarily. Now, again, the point here, one of the points here in talking about these types of miracles, we looked last week at a man who was born blind. There's no faking it when a man is born blind and he is a beggar outside the temple. Jesus comes to him, anoints his eyes, and the man begins to see. There's no faking that. There is no faking it if a man is a paraplegic or, even as we'll see today, a quadriplegic, completely paralyzed. There's no faking it if a man is completely paralyzed, Jesus lays hands on him, or merely speaks to him, and he's immediately healed. You cannot fake that. If a person had lost their leg, let's say he's a Roman soldier. Let's say he's a Roman soldier and he loses his leg in battle. There's no faking when Jesus lays hands on him and the leg returns. You cannot fake that. You cannot fake that. If a man had suffered his entire life from polio because of a childhood illness, there would be no way of faking the healing of polio. Now, why do I make mention of that? And we've emphasized this in the last couple of messages. There are people in today's time that pretend to heal people. And if you watch insider exposings of these people, you know, hidden camera type exposures, the people who claim to be healing people keep those in wheelchairs at the far entrance of the auditoriums they rent with thousands of people in them. And they parade up on stage those that maybe have a, a back problem. Oh, my back hurts today. Or my shoulder, I have shoulder pains, or I have asthma. And the euphoria of that experience deceives people into thinking that they've been healed when two to three weeks later, they're the exact same way that they always were. And all of the poor people, the sick people, the struggling people who came into that auditorium to be healed, they're told, well, you just didn't have enough faith for today, or you just didn't have enough money for today. And so maybe you should give more money, maybe you should have more faith, and God may choose to heal you at a later date. And what it is is snake oil salesmen, charlatans, abusers. We'll see today in one of these examples that when Jesus ran the abusers out of the house of God, the people who were lame came unto him and found strength and healing. He first ran the abusers out, the charlatans out, and then the people who had afflictions were able to come to him. And so there's no faking this. I watched a video recently. If you see this on social media, it's been making rounds for the last couple of weeks of a woman whose arm appears to heal. How many of you have seen that video on, on Facebook or Twitter? I guess it's only me. So there's a video of a woman, and her arm is clearly deformed, and it's over in on the continent of Africa somewhere, and there's all kinds of people around her dancing and, and shouting, and there's a fake preacher with a water bottle throwing water on it. I guess it's supposed to be, you know, DeSante brand holy water. I, I don't really know, but he has a bottle of water, and he's throwing water on it, and all of a sudden her arm begins to lengthen, and it looks to be normal. The problem is there's like four other videos of her doing that at other such healing meetings, and what it is, she has an unset bone in her arm, and when she relaxes it enough... Her arm looks to be normal. Of course, she can't move it, and it just hangs there unmoved because if she tenses it, it goes back into its place. Literally just faking it to take advantage of poor people and their hopes 
in order to be wealthy. And I said this last week, God has a special place in hell for people who do things like that because they are fleecing the sheep. When you read in the Sermon on the Mount, depart from me, I never knew you. And they say, did we not cast out devils in thy name? That's the type of person Jesus is talking to and talking about in that passage of Scripture. There is no faking healing the types of things that Jesus healed, and this was divine proof at his identity as the Messiah and the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh. Matthew chapter 15, as we begin looking at some of the general references to Jesus healing those that are, as we would refer to it, lame, those that are infirmed, those who are paralyzed, those who cannot walk, the halt, as it were. Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee, and he went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, that means unable to speak, maimed, which likely indicates the loss of a hand or an arm, and many others, and Jesus, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered, and they saw, when they saw, the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. Jesus healed those that were infirmed. As we consider an example momentarily from the book of Mark, one thing that we're going to see is because his fame was spread abroad, it was blazed abroad in one passage, Jesus could not even go minister. He couldn't even so much as travel around because the crowd was so large, they would corner him in places and he wouldn't even be able to move about. He wouldn't even be able to travel about. Matthew chapter 21, let's look at this example. In Matthew 21, verse 12, Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Now, this happened twice in Jesus' ministry. The first time occurred early in the Gospel of John. Jesus begins his ministry by purging the temple. Jesus ends his ministry by what? Purging the temple. This occurs in Matthew 21 after his triumphal entry into the holy city. Earlier this year, we spoke on the triumphal entry from the book of Zechariah and Psalm 118. And you know how, according to prophecy, Jesus would ride into the holy city on the colt, the foal of an ass. He would ride in on the back of a donkey. And they would cry out with palm leaves as they fanned before him and laid their garments before him. Hosanna! Hosanna! And that word Hosanna, as you know, comes from the words save us in Psalm 118. Yashaana, Yashana, which is what translates into our English Bibles as Hosanna. Verse 15, they, the children cry, Hosanna to the son of David. And the scribes and Pharisees, the religious elite of that day, were sore displeased. And Jesus goes on to quote another psalm, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. Jesus goes in and he overthrows the tables of the money changers. 
Now, there were many laws in the Old Testament concerning money. There was a treasury. Jesus commended a woman who threw into the treasury. It's not that money in and of itself is bad, but these people are abusers. They are preying on God's people. What were the laws of God? What were people to come and do at the temple? They were to come and offer sacrifices. These money changers say, well, you've got one form of currency. They take another form of currency. We'll exchange your currency from one form to another for a rate, for a price. In other words, you can't worship without first going through us. It's going to cost you if you worship. And this infuriated Jesus And so he goes into the temple and he throws the table of the money changer over. The seats of them that sold doves. He's infuriated by this. He says, my house shall be called the house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. And other times where he had done this, he makes a whip and he begins to chase the animals and the people out of the temple. Notice what happens in verse 14. All of the money changers are driven out. All of the charlatans are driven out. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. What takes place outside of the temple many times, at the gate of the temple? You have people there that are begging. Usually the gate of any place, of the city, of any city, by the way as people walked, sat beggars. In the book of Acts, early on in the book of Acts, Peter, James, and John go into the temple, and there beside the gate of the temple is a man who sat begging, and he had been lame from infancy. And he asks for money, and you know the answer that Peter and James and John gave him. Silver and gold have I none, but such as we have give I unto you. And he says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the man rises up and walks, and he leaps, and he runs, and he jumps. And it causes a commotion. Everyone comes and Peter and James and John begin to preach Christ unto them. Where was he sitting? Sitting there at the gate of the temple. Jesus goes into the temple. He throws over the tables. And all of these handicapped people, these disabled people, these infirmed people, hear the madness going on. And they hear Jesus of Nazareth is here. The healer is here. The one who can heal us, the one that divides the loaves and the fishes. And all of these infirmed people, they come unto him and he healed them. All of the infirmed people come to him and he heals them. To me, this is such a graphic picture. When the abusers are driven out of the house of God, the sick and the afflicted come to Jesus for healing. There's a special relationship between, or is to be a special relationship between the church and those that are afflicted. In the book of Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, nor thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made of thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Now, this is just a simple bit of wisdom. There are people in the world that expect something in reply from you. And Jesus 
encourages us to go and even bless those that cannot even give us anything in return. But I think there's a spiritual application to this. Have we made a feast this morning? Has there been a feast presented unto you? Is the Word of God being unfolded before you? Yes. Is God's Word being shared with you that you might partake of it and ingest it? Yes. When thou makest a feast, call the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind, for thou shalt be blessed. They can not recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed to the resurrection of the just. They can't do anything to bless you or help you. We're looking for a better resurrection. We're not looking for the rewards of this world is the point here. But who do we want to invite? The poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. There's one passage that speaks about going into the highways and the hedges and compelling them to come in that God's house might be filled. One of the target audiences for evangelism should be those that are afflicted. Afflicted with physical infirmities. Afflicted with self-inflicted wounds. Afflicted with sin issues. The whole need not a physician, do they? But the sick need a, need a physician. Matthew chapter 4. Continued speaking generally about Jesus' healing of this particular type of infirmity. Verses 23 through 25, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And His fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto Him all sick people and that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. His fame went throughout. His fame went throughout. It was blazed abroad. Now, there are two examples of this that we want to share with you today concerning what the Bible calls palsy, and as we did last week, maybe draw some spiritual applications in our own lives. You can look many times in Jesus' ministry at the physical things that happen and find a spiritual lesson for all of us to benefit from. As we said, one form of lameness, as it were, was referred to as palsy. People with palsy were paralyzed. And to be lame is to be unable to walk. People with palsy are paralyzed, and so palsy is one form of what the Bible would refer to as lameness. And we know there are many causes of paralysis, and Scripture doesn't seem to distinguish between them. For instance, paralysis could be from what we call palsy today. It could be from a brain injury. If you have a certain part of your brain injured, it might prevent your ability to walk. You remember three years ago, my mother had a battle with unruptured brain aneurysm, and just from the pressure of that aneurysm on part of her brain prior to surgery, she lost sight in one eye in the same side, uh, her right side, her ear stopped working, and the right side of her tongue became numb. So she lost hearing, vision, and taste on one side 
of her senses and struggled with fainting. Why? Because of something putting pressure on the brain. How much more so certain injuries could take away your ability to walk? And you're in a condition that even our medicine today is not likely to help. We can treat it with therapy and the brain can heal on its own. But there are cases of paralysis, palsies, as it were, that even in our modern day of medicine, we have no way to, to correct. Perhaps the causes of some of these palsies that Jesus healed were strokes. If you have a stroke, a blood clot in the vessels of the brain that cuts the blood supply off to a portion of the brain, it can damage it so that you are unable to walk or talk or it might paralyze half of your body, one side of your body. Another cause of this is what we refer to as Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. We've all known someone or someone who has struggled with that particular debilitating virus. You have people who suffer from botulism. In our day and age, with antibiotics, that's not as much of a problem. But in their day and age, you could receive it from ingesting bacteria. You could have a wound that had the bacteria that caused botulism and the toxin begins to spread and you become paralyzed. And sometimes you could die. The most obvious cause of paralysis would be spinal injury in our day and age. That's something that occurs. Someone who has damage to their spinal cord. Jesus heals all manner of people with palsies. You just read that in Matthew chapter 4. But I want to look at a couple of examples. First one is in Matthew chapter 8 of Jesus healing someone who was afflicted with palsy, a form of lameness, and draw some takeaways as we defined them last week from these two examples. The first is a centurion's servant who was stricken with palsy. Now this is interesting because this particular centurion, being a centurion, is a Gentile. This particular man is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. There were times in Jesus' ministry that though he primarily came to minister among the nation of Israel, he did minister to those who were non-Jews, Gentiles. And this foreshadowed, as we'll see in this passage, the opening up of the church to the Gentiles and the closing of the church to the Jews as a judgment against them. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, begging him, the word beseech and beg can also be synonymous with the word pray. Now, one of the takeaways that we have today is prayer. The way that we come to Jesus and we beg him. Understand when we're praying to the God of the universe, we're not demanding, though we come boldly to the throne of grace, we are beseeching. We are not demanding, we are begging. Like a beggar at the door of the temple, we beg God for his mercy, for his healing, for his provision. He beseeched him, saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. Understand that Jesus knows everything. He knows the motivations. He knows what's about to happen. Even though he is fully human, he is also fully God. He's not a demigod. 
completely God. He's completely man. 100% God, 100% man. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. He laid aside none of his deity. All he laid aside was the glory that he had with the Father from before the foundation of the world. John 17, verses 1 through 3. Jesus knows what this man is going to say, but Jesus is doing this for our sake, for their sake, for his sake. I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. I'm not worthy for you to walk into my house. I'm not worthy to have you. I'm a sinful man. But simply speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And by that, I don't believe he's telling Jesus, I'm a person of authority, so just do what I tell you. I believe he's confessing, first of all, his own sinfulness, and second of all, the responsibilities that he has. Lord, just heal him. Just heal him, I beg you. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. By virtue of this man simply coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, you don't have to go all the way to my house. You don't have to go all the way to my servant. You don't have to lay hands on him. But Lord, all you got to do is speak it. And I know this man will be healed. Jesus looks at him and he said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. You see, Jesus said what he said, I will go and heal him so that everyone else will see this example. Lord, all you have to do is speak. What's a takeaway from that? Lord, all you have to do is speak. What's another takeaway from that? Lord, I'm unworthy. If you do anything for me, it is by your grace and your mercy. But Jesus continues his words. I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What have we done today? We have come to sit down with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven today. We're literally fulfillments of this prophecy. But the kingdom of the or children of the kingdom, the nation of Israel, more specifically, shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It wouldn't be fitting to leave it there. Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. That moment in time, Jesus simply spoke it, and this particular man, this particular servant, was healed. Mark chapter 2. As you're turning to Mark chapter 2, might we point out as far as the voice of the Son of God and the power therein goes, I want you to understand that all Jesus has to do is but speak. In the beginning of time, what did God do? What means, what agency did He incorporate to create the universe? God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said, let the earth bring forth green. 
the herb yielding seed. God said, let the waters bring forth the, the fish and the, the fowls. And he simply speaks and it is. In the resurrection, what will be the power that raises the dead? The voice of the Son of God. In the new birth, what is the power that is used in the spiritual resurrection of those that are quickened? The voice of the Son of God. They hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. John 5.25 He needs not but to speak. Mark chapter 2 and this is one of the most interesting occurrences in the four Gospels. Jesus was traveling about after having begun His ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus begins traveling around and healing people, He had just begun His ministry. Earlier in that chapter, He was baptized. He was led up of the wicked one to be tempted in the wilderness and defeated the wicked one in the temptation, the solicitation that He presented Him. Jesus never lusted after things forbidden. He was never tempted as we are where we think, I'd like to do that, but I struggle with it. No, Jesus never lusted after sin. After that, He begins His ministry, and as you read, His fame was noised abroad. Here in Mark 2, the same has happened. After He entered into Capernaum some days, it was noised abroad that He was in the house, and straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door, and He preached the word unto them. And they come unto Him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. Now, born there is B-O-R-N-E, if your Bibles are not open. If they are, you can notice that in verse 3. He was born of four. B-O-R-N-E is a derivative of the word bear. To bear one up, they are born up. And so this particular man, what this is saying is that he's being carried by four friends. These four friends carry him to Jesus. Now, they could have been carrying him... Arm, arm, leg, leg, each over a shoulder. But as is indicated later in this passage, this man had a bed. And so more than likely, verse 9, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. This man is more than likely being carried on some sort of a pallet that is on the shoulders of these four friends. They come to him bringing one sick of the palsy which was born of four. He is paralyzed. He cannot walk. Now, what was the cause of this? We don't know. But we do know what the solution of it was. When they could not come nigh unto him for the press, that is to say, all the people around him, the horde of people around him. Listen to this, verse 4. They uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. So these four guys, they bring their friend to Jesus. They love this man. This man has either been injured or he's been stricken with an illness and infirmity. They climb up on the roof. How they got this poor guy up on the roof, I don't know. It was common for them to have ladders on the sides of these buildings because you would go up on the roof as a place of recreation, a place of lounging, a place where people would go and talk or think. This is what Scripture means when it speaks about sharing it from the housetop or the rooftop. It's not to stand on the pinnacle of your house and scream the gospel at people when they drive by. That's a good way of being mistaken for a crazy person. And maybe we should try that sometime and get up on the, get up on the roof of my house, 
kind of high <laughs> up on a hill and take a megaphone and scream at passersby. Maybe that's not the best idea. But it was used as we use our back porches often. Well, they go up there and they drag him up there. Poor guy gets pulled up on the top of this house either by ladder or they just yank him up there. We don't know. But they get up on it and they begin to pull away the roof. And it could have been a thatch roof. could have been some sort of a, a clay roof. But they break this roof. Notice the interesting language there. They uncovered the roof where he was and had broken it up. So they demolish a part of the roof and lay the guy down into the room while Jesus is preaching. Put yourself in the room. Put yourself in the room. You're in the room with Jesus. Jesus is preaching. And to put it in a 2019 context, imagine if the sheetrock suddenly had a hole knocked in it and some guy gets lowered down and he's paralyzed. And then these other four dudes begin to jump down and imagine the scene. Imagine the scene. Don't, don't make it so sterile that you, you miss some of the audacity of these men and the tenacity of these men. They burst through the roof. And when Jesus saw their faith, why did they do this? Because of faith. Because of faith. He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, look at that word. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, what? Sinner? No. Son. This afflicted man was a child of God being carried on the shoulders of four other children of God. All of them are of faith. He saw their faith and he calls this man what? Son. This is a child of God. This is a case of five believers who come to Jesus. I was speaking last night with a friend of mine, Elder John Burkett, and he pointed out one of the great disadvantages of this affliction was the lack of the ability to go into worship. We have a handicap ramp here, and we have a... Actually, now we have two wheelchairs that belong to Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. One of them is now the sound room chair. I don't know what that says about our sound man, but we have, we have two wheelchairs. If you're infirm, there's no law prohibiting it. You can come right in. If you were a Levite and you were infirmed, you couldn't even go do your Levitical work. You were unqualified to go into the temple. And you certainly couldn't go in and perform your duties and to gather and to worship with the congregation. Not only did it prevent your ability to work, but it prevented your ability to worship. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, when Jesus said this, and he does what he does on purpose, there were certain of the scribes sitting there, reasoning in their hearts. Huh. You can just hear them. You just, you just see the arrogance oozing out of them. Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Well, the second assertion is true. The second assertion is true. Who can forgive sins but God only? This is God incarnate. This is God in the flesh. Jesus never wasted words. He did all of this so we would learn and understand. What's written is so that we could believe. 
according to John 20, that our faith would be strengthened. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive but God? Immediately in our study on Mark, we talked about how this is one of his favorite words. Anon, straightway, immediately. It's a gospel of action. It goes from one thing to the next to the next. Immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Why do you think this? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. Is it any more difficult to say one sentence than the other? No. For Jesus, nor is it more difficult to forgive him than it is to heal him. For us, both are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Whither is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on the earth to forgive sins. You see, he, he orchestrated his words. He chose his words just so this conversation would happen. So that we would know not only that he has the power to heal the sick, but also to forgive sins. That ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on the earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose and took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. We've never seen something like this before. What's the takeaway from that? One takeaway, aside from the examples on Jesus forgiving sins and the power of healing in His voice, this is a great example of intercessory prayer. When you've got a friend that's afflicted, hey, you four, pick him up, carry him to Jesus. The great power of intercessory prayer this man, he had no way to get himself there, but these four friends pick him up. They carry him to Jesus to make intercession one for another in prayer. They came to Jesus with the needs of their friends. Takeaway two, last week we talked about persevering in prayer and how we need to continue to beg and beseech God for that which we stand in need of. This shows the tenacity of their hearts in this position or this petition to Jesus. They would not take no for an answer. They climb on the roof. They knock a hole in it. They lower their friend down and they say, Jesus, heal our friend. We ought to be tenacious in our pursuit of Christ through prayer as we pursue the mercy of Jesus in our lives. Jesus healed the lame. Jesus healed those that could not walk. Jesus healed those with the palsy many times at the intercession of other children of God, teaching us wonderful lessons about prayer and the mercy of Christ.